0: Turn your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 10. The reading of God's word comes from Proverbs chapter 10, starting in verse 24. We'll read through verse 28. These are smaller selections of Proverbs as uh, their individual sayings, and uh, particularly starting in chapter 10, uh, the book does not lend itself to uh, reading large portions of it, but rather taking... In a handful of um, the sayings and uh, meditating upon them, hearing them, reflecting uh, upon them. And so uh, these are shorter selections which we've been availing ourselves of. So Proverbs chapter 10, verses 24 through 28. What the wicked dreads will come upon him, but the desire of the righteous will be granted. When the tempest passes, the wicked is no more, but the righteous is established forever. Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the sluggard to those who send him. The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. The hope of the righteous brings joy, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Join me in prayer as we ask God's blessing on the reading and the preaching of his word. Lord, we give you thanks for your word that you have not left us in darkness. We give you thanks for the light of the world uh, whom the darkness has not overcome, uh, who gives light uh, to all. Uh, saving light to your people, and so we ask now as we come before your word that you would instruct us, that you would build us up, that you would feed us, Uh, we acknowledge we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from your mouth. We acknowledge our need for the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, not only as uh, our a sacrifice, and the one who stood in our stead, but as the one who leads us now in the way of righteousness, who is our wisdom, who is our understanding. And so be pleased even now uh, to continue uh, to disciple us, uh, to form us and fashion us, uh, to grant that understanding of who you are and what you are doing and uh, what you have called us to. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen. Once more, we take our sermon text from Exodus chapter 20. And if you'd like, you can prepare uh, by turning in the back of your hymnal to page 972, where you find once more question 60 from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. But first, this is God's word. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it Holy. Thus ends the reading of God's word. And then the catechism asks in question 60, how is the Sabbath to be sanctified? The Sabbath is to be sanctified by a holy resting all that day, even from such worldly employments and recreations as are lawful on other days and spending the whole time in the public and private exercises of God's worship, except so much as is to be taken up in the works of necessity and mercy. One of the lovelier pictures of the Sabbath is the uh, picture of God's people Uniquely communing with their triune God. fellowshipping with their triune God. Uh, Sharing a meal with their triune God. That's what we mark when we hear the words of institution. Uh, There is table fellowship that is shared uh, with God and his people. It harkens back to a number of remarkable episodes in the Old Testament. But I think there's another development that might be uh, appropriate in which uh, Robert Murray McShane seized upon in his delight. in not just Christ, but the gifts and graces that Christ extends to his people in their earthly sojourn. And it comes from the marital image. And the image of marriage. Which is everywhere employed in scripture, both for God's relationship to his people in the Old Testament and for Christ's relationship to his church in the New Testament. And I think it helps us to capture something of the loveliness of this day. Now, Samantha and I are married. We are always married. That is the state into which we have entered into. Uh, It is well-known fact that in marriage uh, most of it is not glamorous (laughs) it's a day-to-day mundane grind Uh, as you attend to life in whatever season you're in uh, the last few days of our marriage has not been glamorous at all as the Seyfried household was laid low and we cared for little ones uh, laid low Uh, Now, certainly it has a certain loveliness, even in the non-glamorous aspects of it. There's an ordinary loveliness in the struggle. Um, But I don't think you would find a couple on earth that would say, I would rather have what the Seifert household had over the last uh, three days instead of a date. I hope you go on dates. I don't know if you do, but even if you don't, you've had the experience of getting away with your beloved, of spending specific time together, uh, enjoying one another's fellowship, enjoying one another's companionship, and en- enjoying one another. If you're not married, you've had friends uh, where you've set apart specific time to enjoy one another. Hmm to spend time together, intentionally spend time together. Probably it happens over a meal. cup of coffee or a glass of wine, good meal. Those things tend to facilitate fellowship. It seems to be that angle that helps us to see something of the delight of this day. We always belong to the Lord. Six days, one day, seven days, we're Him. And it doesn't mean that we're not Struck by the delight of that during the six. But there is a leaning into the delight that happens on the seventh. Just as there's a leaning into the delight when you get that time away, that time when you set the other things aside for the specific purpose of drawing near. And in a sense, that's what the Sabbath is. It's a day of unique delighting. In belonging to our God. Unique delighting in our king who surpasses every other king. A unique delight in the portion which we have been given. In the unfading, imperishable, incorruptible inheritance, which is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. I think when you frame it like that, it helps us better to hear... The calls to leave off, to cease, to turn away from some things and turn to other things. I assure you, as much as I love my day-to-day life with my wife, it is no burden at all to me to leave off those daily cares, to sit down over meat and wine with her and enjoy the love that the Lord has granted us and so the Lord would have us learn that what he calls us to leave off is no loss it's no subtraction rather it is the gateway to delight as the Lord beckons us uniquely into his presence to his table to hear the glories of his name rehearsed and sung adored and delighted in We're continuing our time in the Sabbath. Two weeks back, we saw that the fourth commandment is not the only commandment that disappears. Now, just as all the other nine still continue to shape the Christian life, so the fourth shapes the Christian life as that rule of righteousness in which Christ now leads us. And last week, we saw that we continue to Sabbath. We continue to mark the Sabbath day. We continue to consecrate, to sanctify the Sabbath day by faith in our creator, redeemer, and the Lord of the Sabbath. And that specifically, we set aside one whole day per his instruction. And we don't ignore the fact that he's instructed one day. But then we took up something of what it looks like to set apart the Sabbath. What exactly does the day look like? And we said that there were both negative components and positive components, meaning there were things we leave off and there are things we take up. And we said the first thing that we leave off is our toilsome labor. We're going to make two more observations tonight about what we leave off. First, we leave off are lawful, worldly employments. That's what the phrase of the catechism is. By wholly resting all that day from worldly employments, which are lawful on other days. That's plain from the commandment itself, Exodus 20, 9 and 10. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. And it likens the Lord's work of creating this world to our work of living in this world. The Lord gives us six days for Our work, that's how he says it, your work, right? You have six days for your work. We can mark the goodness of God as we had occasion to do in supplying us the strength, the abilities, the opportunities to sustain and improve our earthly lot. The state of our households, whatever the size of those households may be, whether it's a single individual or whether it's a large family. I think we should go on to mark that we live in a certain time and place. And by and large, we have been blessed with rich opportunities. Rich opportunities to employ ability, creativity, in lawful ways to earn More than competent portions of this world's goods. Would anybody debate that? No, you wouldn't. (laughs) The strength that we have for these opportunities, the very fact that these opportunities exist are from the Lord as he makes plain. As I referenced earlier when we prayed in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8 specifically says that whatever success that our strength and opportunities yields additionally is from him. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 17 and 18, I'll read it. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. So our thinking is, we've done this. The Lord says, no, no, I've given you this, and I've blessed you in this endeavor. And so we can mark his goodness in that the six days that he gives us for our work are adorned with the strength necessary to do that work, are adorned with work to which he calls us to do, and indeed are the means that he is pleased to use to supply us with our daily bread. We pray for our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. And the Lord is pleased to give you strength and opportunity by which he supplies you with that very thing. Don't miss his provision in that. Mark his goodness in that. But We go on to say more. He is the one who ultimately provides us even with that earthly portion and he is the one who has shown himself favorably disposed to us in giving us the Lord Jesus Christ, establishing our eternal portion in him. And thus, we are freed. We are freed from seeking out that earthly portion on the one day because we have ample reason to trust the one who has given us strength for the six, the one who has blessed the labors in the six, and the one who has shown himself infinitely favorably disposed to us in Christ and establishing for us an eternal portion of life forevermore such that the laying down of the labors for the one is really no burden at all. You can feel how it is a call to trust, is it not? There's a call to trust as we lay down these earthly labors. Everywhere around us, people are continuing to produce, continuing to try to get ahead. I don't know exactly what the specifics of your calling are, but perhaps there is a competitive element to it. Where the people who are willing to work on the one are going to be looked upon with more favor than the people who are not willing to work upon the one. In those moments, you're at a crossroad, Christian, are you not? Do you lack evidence that God loves you? Do you lack evidence that he is trustworthy? Do you lack evidence that he has the power to provide for you? I pray you don't lack the strength and the power To walk down what may be a harder road. For he has designated this a day of blessing as we leave off that worldly employment, which is lawful on the six. He cares for you, beloved. Christ uses some of the most moving language in scripture in Matthew six to emphasize our father's care for us in such mundane things. The lilies of the valley have a clothing and a splendor that surpasses some of the finest spinning that man can do. The sparrows don't sow, don't reap, and yet they have plenty. How much more are you to the Father than sparrows, than lilies? He cares for you in this way. He has demonstrated it to you in his word, and I trust through his providence and abundantly in the gospel of Jesus Christ where the son was not spared, and thus we can be sure that he will not keep from us any good thing. We see this 6 and 1, the leaving off of the earthly labor, plainly and instructively in Exodus chapter 16 as well. Exodus 16 is the well-known episode of the manna and the gathering, starting in verse 22. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain, each of you, in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. We don't lack assurances that God is going to provide what is necessary for our earthly lives. Even as we lay aside that instinct That instinct that says, well, unless I'm doing, I'm not going to have. Unless I'm working, I'm not going to have. Beloved, if he tells you to rest, then you are safe in resting. If he tells you to cease, you're safe in ceasing. For where the Father designates us to stand, that is the safest ground for us to stand. But you also hear that there is an instruction That attends this six-in-one pattern, isn't it? There's a preparation that takes place for the seventh day. The promise of provision on the seventh empowers the preparation for the seventh on the sixth. It compels a different course of action, does it not? The seventh day is something that's not to be approached in a thoughtless manner or a haphazard manner but in a manner of anticipation, of in a manner of preparation. I'm sure you've experienced this in just the day-to-day life or uh, the various seasons of life that the Lord gives us. Preparation actually facilitates and enables true rest. Have you found this to be the case? I don't know when the last time you took an impromptu trip was, but if you're like anything like my family in impromptu trips don't go well they're certainly not restful they're stressful they're incredibly stressful you have no idea what the next step is going to be and then you have to make a, a decision in the base of countless options and it all kind of grates on you or maybe it's just me maybe i'm the only one i don't think so If you take a trip, you plan and you prepare, you make sure that things are in order such that you can leave them behind, you can ignore them for whatever the length of time that the trip is, so you can give your attention to the matter at hand. I don't know if you've ever went on a trip where you're hopelessly preoccupied with the work that you've left behind. That trip is hardly restful. The purpose of the trip is undermined by your very preoccupation. And so we can see the good wisdom on display in God's word, which is encapsulated in the Westminster Larger Catechism 117, where we're exhorted to prepare our hearts beforehand with such foresight and diligence and moderation to seasonably arrange our worldly business that we may be the more free and fit for the duties of the day. People are constantly talking about a work-life balance these days. I don't know, does your company talk that way? I hope they do. I mean, it's not a bad thing. I think it's a good ballast to our utter obsession with work that I don't know was really helped by the pandemic season where people all of a sudden blurred that like final boundary between work and home but we have this understanding that you should leave work at work you should leave the work within its proper confines if you take the work outside of its confines everybody's going to suffer If a person is constantly bringing their work home, as the saying goes, transporting it beyond its proper boundaries, it's not going to be long before the new arena suffers, because it's not designated to be there. Use the date illustration, imagine Sam and I sit down to a nice dinner, and instead of Talking and enjoying it, my head is buried in Calvin's commentary. As excellent as Calvin's commentary is, that would be wrong. That would be sinful. It's not the time, Seifert, get your work done when you're called to work so that you can enjoy meat and wine and your beautiful wife who doesn't want to talk to Calvin right now. (laughs) She wants to talk to you. Praise God. We leave work at work. Beloved, leave your work in the sixth. Leave it there. Arrange it so that you can leave it there. The Lord tells you you can leave it there. Why would you want to take it here? I mean, that's kind of absurd as well, isn't it? Like we leave, we go home, we want to take vacations. The Lord says, look, you get a day. You don't don't have to think about it. Don't even think about it. We're like, well, I'm going to think about it. No, I'm probably, yeah, if there's an occasion, I'm going to work. said, Look, we're going to die. It's partly killing us. The Lord says, leave it alone. And we're like, no, I'm going out on the seventh. Foolish people. We're so foolish. So what is it for you? Is it a day for trying to keep up in the rat race? Is it a day for anxiety that other people are getting ahead in this clay kingdom that's going to end? Oh, they're going to get more stuff. They're going to get more accolades from the people that don't matter. Is it a day to catch up on homework? Or is it a day to hear refreshment? Come and sit down to table with me, beloved. I've prepared it. I've given you my son. I want you to know that this life is not all that there is. I want you to know that I made you for myself. I want you to know that there's more than just a paycheck or an accolade and that in the grand scheme of things that's ridiculous to build a meaning upon that's what I want you to know leave off your labors and prepare for the one we hear the call to prepare and I think our minds can Immediately run to, well, that's legalistic. No, it's not. It's just, you can treat anything legalistically. Anything. So it's just not inherently legalistic. It's not magical, right? There's nothing magic about getting your earthly affairs in order so you can put them aside. It's like, oh, you've reached level nine of sanctification. One more level. It's not mechanical. Lord's like, oh, yep, writing that down in the book of good deeds. That'll get paid back. It's not magical. It's not mechanical. But it is organic. It's remarkably organic. The call to prepare. What if it's just the Lord letting you know that he knows your frame? <laughs> that he knows that you are relentlessly prone to distraction. How kind. The Lord even knows that your mind is incredibly vulnerable to wandering, that it's incredibly difficult for you to set your mind on the things that are above, that it's incredibly difficult for you to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. So what does he say? He says, prepare, mm-hmm. prepare. This isn't something you're going to do naturally. Naturally. Instinctively, it's something that's gonna take some fortitude of mind and thought. You guys know I'm into like the physical parallels these days, but nobody's gonna get up and go run the fastest mile they've ever run like that. You gotta give that some thought, and then you've gotta brace yourself for the endeavor. And then you've got to steal yourself that's going to be disorienting because you'd rather be on a couch watching Netflix, eating a bag of Cheetos, which incidentally is a perfect image of death. It's very easy to die. Mm. It's quite comfortable. It's harder to live. It's uncomfortable. (laughs) The call to prepare is God acknowledging that he knows our frame. And so he says, put things in order so that you can turn away from that and gaze upon this, which you don't do instinctively because our minds are clay minds that gravitate so naturally to this clay coil, earth-bound. But in preparation, we're freed to begin to seek the things that are above. The good gift of preparation on the Sabbath, the good gift of laying aside our work on the Sabbath, the good gift of hearing our Father's understanding of the weakness of our frame. I hope you can hear in these things a call to be refreshed and not a burden that is going to drive you into the ground. The next phrase we need to consider briefly is ceasing from recreation. I think this is strange for some of us. If you can get behind not working on the Sabbath, everyone's like, oh, yeah, it <laughs> no work. But do we go to the beach? Like, what's the trade-off here? So the question 60 says that we rest even from such worldly employments and recreations as are lawful on the other days so we cease from our recreations what does that mean i think uh, i'm kind of tongue-in-cheek here but we can point out briefly that it doesn't mean this strictly uh, and what i mean is that in the strictest sense the sabbath is the only day that recreates That's what recreation means, to be recreated. To recreate means to be rejuvenated, revitalized, refreshed. In that sense, the Sabbath is the one day where we breathe the air of heaven. And we're refreshed. We're recreated. We get confused. We live six days in a submarine, as it were. And then on the 7th, we get to come up for air. And that's refreshment, but we get confused. We think that it's, no, the, the little pleasures in the submarine, like playing dominoes or whatever, that's true recreation. It's like, no, recreation, revitalization is to breathe the air of heaven, our home, our home, home is refreshing, home is rejuvenating, home is revitalizing. Everything else is distractions. Now, some of them are quite pleasant. But a home recreates. Where's your home? And truly, where's your home? There's nowhere, I mean, relatively speaking, if I want to be refreshed, I go home. As much as I've enjoyed naps on like my brother's couch... I've enjoyed some remarkable hospitality from friends. Even I was in Maryland. Uh, My friend put me up in his guest room and it was wonderful. It was so welcoming. They're so hospitable. But nothing refreshes like home. The same is true for you, Christian. Your home is not this world. Your home is not this earth. Your home is where Christ is. That's your home. And Christ is at the right hand of the Father. That's what refreshes, breathing that air. We can note that we have lawful recreations, and that's God's kindness as well. That there are six days where we can enjoy lawful recreations. I told you Maisie's been reading or listening to the Little House on the Prairie series, and some of my favorite scenes that I overhear is when Pa gets his fiddle to close a day. These kids are just delighted, like, pocket your fiddle, and then they're singing. It's like, man, things were simpler, maybe better then, because they really loved that. Like, we don't really love anything anymore. Like, we hate almost everything. <laughs> and they're like, he's kind of play the fiddle, and you're like, that's amazing, like, how much joy that brings them. On the cusp of the 4th of July uh, holiday, they're all excited because they know there's going to be lawful play lawful enjoyment and they're legitimately exciting we ought to receive those things as god's common grace gift. scripture itself reminds us there's a time to sing there's a time to dance there's a time to laugh that even as hard as things get here even as much as the six days are filled with work you've tasted the delight of lawful recreation on the six haven't you Give thanks for it, even in a time as difficult as the times in which Scripture are written. They can still say, "Yeah, there's laughter, there's laughing, there's singing, there's dancing, there's good gifts to be received. There's lawful play, and they do delight the heart." So find time to go to a baseball game with your family, or go spend the day at the beach. Or by the pool, find time to go to the zoo, enjoy the animals in the sky in the summer, find time to go on long hikes in all the state parks that are around us. See in those things God's good gifts. He's blessed us richly with wholesome enjoyments that are all around us. Don't let the good call to work become a consuming obsession with work such that those refreshing gifts of God are ignored. He's given them to be received with thanksgiving. so receive them with thanksgiving. But leave them on the (laughs) sixth, because the seventh is different. It's not a day for the beach. It's not a day for a beer at a ball game. It's a day to be re- Created by breathing the air of heaven. Now I will say, and I've gone long, once again, how does that keep happening? <laughs> Notice that it doesn't specify a list of activities here. You can read Westminster Confession 21. You could read Westminster Larger 117. You could read the shorter, and it's not interested in spelling out exactly what you can and can't do. Interestingly, historically, if you read the book of sports from King James, he will tell you exactly what you can and can't do on the day of Sabbath. There's some really interesting ones in there. You can't bull bait or bear bait, uh, but you can... Go to an archery tournament. I don't know what theologians he had in his employ. I'd love to hear the reasoning behind that. The divines wisely do not take such a approach to this day. You're not going to find the larger catechism saying you can go for a walk, but not a jog. If you break a 14 minute mile, so help me. (laughs) You can kick a ball, but only if you ask a theological question at every kick. It's the wrong spirit altogether, isn't it? The spirit of the day is the loveliness of the day, what we're called to enter into. What fills the day is based on the the provision of the day of drawing near unto the Lord. And from there, the day takes on its contours. The principal sound, the day belongs uniquely to the Lord. We're to seek his pleasure uniquely, not our own pleasure primarily. And in seeking his pleasure, we find our pleasure. (laughs) In shifting from the passing pleasures of earth, we begin to taste of the lasting joys of heaven. Those are the sorts of considerations which then shape what specifically we do on the day. And we can close just by noting that even though the church's main temptation in the current landscape is to ignore the day entirely, to ignore the blessing of the Sabbath and its privileges, it doesn't mean we're not vulnerable to an overly scrupulous approach to the day, a day that destroys the spirit of the day. I've ruined many a dates by saying, just tell me what I can and can't do, and I'll do that. I haven't really. But you could see how that would ruin the day itself. Hodge exhorts us, A.A. Hodge. As to the observance of the Christian Sabbath, the obvious general rule is that it is to be observed not in the spirit of the law, which Christ condemns, but in the holy and free spirit of the gospel. Now Again, we've already said that the spirit of the gospel is not antithetical to careful thoughtfulness, to obedience, to preparation, but an overly scrupulous approach to the day does begin to turn the spirit of the day into something that Christ himself would find repugnant. Francis Turreton, this is a longer quote, but I think it's worth reading, so bear with me. It's the last thing I'm going to ask you to do today, mentally. So just prepare yourself. <laughs> Curt up the loins of your mind. Francis Turitan: "We do not think that in this cessation, believers are bound to Judaical precision such that it is neither lawful to kindle a fire, nor to cook food, nor to prosecute a journey, nor to refresh oneself with innocent relaxation of mind or body, nor to have any diversion. For such is to impose anew upon the shoulders of Christians an unbearable yoke repugnant to Christian liberty and the gentleness of Christ, And it is opposed to the sweetness of the covenant of grace by agitating and tormenting the consciences of men through infinite scruples and multiplications of difficulties, nearly driving to desperation. If you didn't catch every word of that, I hope you at least caught the tenor of it. There's nothing wrong with asking what's appropriate and inappropriate on the Sabbath there is something wrong with a rule-based approach to a day where the loveliness of the gospel is uniquely on display. To approach a date with your beloved, a meal with your closest friend, with the spirit that Hodge and Turretin warn against is the surest way to ruin that day. Rather, as we hear our king beckon us into his presence, As we hear our Lord say, come to the right hand where there are pleasures forevermore. Let us pray for the eyes to see that this is the place of true delight. Until we see that, that he alone gives joy and the fullness thereof. No list of rules for the day will ever usher in to satisfaction. And once you do begin to see that, no earthly pleasure will compare with time spent face to face through the word with our King and our God. May he grant us the eyes to see that. Let's pray. Almighty God and Father, we do give you thanks for this day of tasting of our eternal portion of drawing near unto you, of sitting at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. We do pray that you would teach us, Father, to receive of the blessing that you have for us on this day uh, with an earnest faith and trust and a looking unto Christ to supply us with everything necessary for life and godliness. For we ask in his name. Amen.